You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today we're very excited to have a special guest speaker with us. Now let's prepare our hearts as our special guest brings forth God's truth from His Word today. Upon returning home, he started college at Yale. And while there, he wrote in his journal, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. This became Borden's uh, motto. And this man who refused to buy a car or make lavish expenditures instead began to give all of his money to missions, hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was told that he would never work in the family business. And in fact, he was disowned by his family. And even still, he finished his college. He went on to seminary and eventually he set out for China. Within four months of the start of his ministry, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. And his tombstone read, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. The question that I have this morning is, what happened to him while he was on that trip around the world? What what caused him to change and to want to go in a different direction than the rest of his family? William Borden came in contact with God, and it changed his life forever. He saw his own sin in the light of the holiness of God, and the course of his life was radically altered. And so he gave himself fully to the calling of God, like Isaiah He said, here am I, send me. A couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, we did a lesson on worship, and we were in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. And I said then that I had a sequel to that message that kind of ties into that and as well as the lesson that we had last Wednesday night. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6 again this morning, only we're traveling down a different path as we look at this particular passage again, but here is a young man who said, here am I, send me. His motivation came from a heart that had been cleansed and a desire to honor the one who had shown him grace. Have you ever said to God, here am I, send me? Are you ready in your own heart to leave all and to sacrifice absolutely everything for God's glory? Does your heart break as you see the hurt in this world and the lostness of souls around you? And so you pray, God, use me. Whether it be for four months or for 40 years, use me for your glory. Are you there yet? Most of us are not. And we are, we are oftentimes content to be able to live kind of a ho-hum Christian life. We, we go to our favorite coffee shops to study, and, and, and we um, exist in our own little Christian bubble, insulating ourselves from the real physical and spiritual needs that, all, that are all around us. But we don't burn for Christ. We don't have a passion for his name. 
We don't ache in our, in our very souls for the lost people that we come into contact with every day. Oh yes, we would like to see them come to know Christ, and we would like to see them come out to church and experience what we have, but we don't really ache in our hearts for those who are lost. We don't beg God like Isaiah, use me. God, here am I, use me, send me. Let me be involved in some way to touch the hearts of people. And the question that I want to ask us this morning is, what is missing? Why, do we, why, why don't we burn? Why don't we have a passion? And I think it's because we don't see God rightly. We don't have the right view of God. We, we, we do not see him for who he really is. And, and so we, we, are, we are stunted. We are dull. We are kind of calloused. We become ineffective in our Christian walk. But as we look at Isaiah 6 this morning again, we will see that God is great and that he is worthy of worship. And, and once we have seen him rightly, the result will be that we will plead with him to use us in an amazing way for his glory. And so let's turn our attention to chapter 6 here. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that God is greater than you can comprehend. He is greater than our minds can comprehend. If we are to be used of God, then the first step is to see him rightly. There, there are six aspects of the character of God in these first four verses that will help raise him, help, help raise our view of him to a higher level. So we need to move rather quickly this morning, so I'll try, to, try not to lose you here, but number one, God is alive. And we see that very simply in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And so Uzziah was the king of Judah. Under, the, under his rule, Jerusalem became a strong and fortified city. And as a result of his leadership, the people enjoyed great prosperity and peace. But when he, but when he looked at all of his accomplishments... His heart was filled with pride, and of course we know that God struck him with leprosy. He was removed from the temple, he was removed from worship, he was banished to live out his days as a leper. And now in verse 1, the king is dead. Assyria is amassing troops to the east and civil unrest and the fear of war is beginning to brew and the, and the people are wondering, where is God? If you asked a contemporary audience that question, more often than not you would receive a very simple answer, God is dead. In our culture today that is full of, of atheists and agnostics, God is at best viewed as outdated and irrelevant. And many would even say that he doesn't even exist. But denying the existence of God is like standing outside in the noonday day sun and closing your eyes and feeling the warmth of the sun on your face and saying, the sun doesn't exist because I can't see it. That's what it means to deny God. 
But make no mistake about, about it, there is a God, and he is alive. He is very much alive and very much in control of everything that's going on in this universe. And, and, and it's been that way since the very beginning. In the garden, Adam saw God. In Genesis, Enoch walked with God. Moses used to talk to God as a man would talk to his friend. And when we get into the New Testament, the apostles saw God in human flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a day is coming when we too will see God in all of his glory. And Isaiah, or, or Uzziah may be dead, but God is very much alive. Secondly, God is sovereign. I saw also the Lord setting upon a throne. Who's, who sets on thrones? Well, kings do. And, and this is not just the throne of, of Israel where Uzziah sat, but the throne of heaven, the throne of, in fact, the universe. And notice that we never see a vision of God where he is balancing his checkbook, or filling up his gas tank, or running late for work. He does not hurry around throughout the day like an overworked manager or, or become overwhelmed by too many things on his to-do list and trying to juggle it all. No, God is always seated. He is on his throne in the position of authority, in the position of control. And all, all is as it should be according to his sovereign will. And so that means that there is nothing in your life that is not a part of his plan for you. You understand, there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no loss of a loved one, there's no loss of a job, there's no broken heart, or anything else that is outside of God's plan that is outside of his sovereignty, absolutely nothing. Every molecule of this universe is under his control and functions according to his plan and his sovereignty, absolutely everything, and that includes the coronavirus and all of the stuff that we are dealing with today that we really don't like to deal with, but it is all under the sovereignty of a holy God. God is transcendent. It says he is high and lifted up there in verse 1. He's above all. His throne is above all others. He does not compete in any way for control. He is infinitely greater than the created order of this universe. We cannot think of God as highest in an ascending order of things or of being, starting with the single cell organism and then going on to the fish or the bird or animals, man, and then there's God up here. It doesn't work that way with God. He is as high above the highest archangel as he is high above the caterpillar. The gap between God and the created order is infinite. He is the exalted one. He is totally other than anything or anyone. God is majestic. His train filled the temple. We have probably all seen weddings where a bride's dress has, has this long train. And guys, that's, that's the part of the dress that, you know, dangles and they 
bring down the Allen. A young girl, the bridesmaid, has dreamed of their whole life of this one important job that she has to do uh, during this whole thing. And that's when the, the bride goes up and she needs to turn around this whole great big long thing. And she picks it up and whoosh, they live for that, guys. I don't get it, but they, they love that. Having this train and whoosh, swishing it around. When we look at God, in ancient times, the, the greater the king, the bigger the train of his robe. And this train of God, the entire room, from corner to corner was filled with a tapestry woven together in an amazing display of beauty, demonstrating the absolute majesty of our holy God. It tells us that he is a God of incomparable splendor. There isn't even as, as beautiful as many of the things that we see, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset or the majestic um, uh, Grand Canyon or whatever you can imagine, the most beautiful thing, it doesn't even compare to the splendor and the glory of our God. He is of majestic beauty. He is revered. In, in verse 2, Isaiah goes on to say, Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And so these are unique and highly exalted angelic beings who dwell in the presence of God. The Hebrew, as we said a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night, for a seraphim means the burning ones. They, they are there to do God's bidding. They are ready to dispatch in a moment to accomplish whatever purpose that God has. They stand before him in perfect purity, lost in worship, guarding the way to his presence, protecting his holiness, and ready to act on his behalf. And notice verse 2 tells us that they had six wings, but they did not use all six wings to fly. Two are used to cover their face, and two are used to cover their feet. And why is that? Well, in absolute reverence for God, they humbly covered their feet and their faces in his presence. We are told in Ezekiel 33:20 that no man can see God and live, and not even the holy angels look directly at him, but use their wings to protect themselves from the glory of God. God is holy. In the first part of verse 3, he says here, the one cried unto the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So the, the seraphims declared the holiness of God. Of all of his attributes, we, we mentioned two weeks ago, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him. It is the attribute of God that binds together all of the other attributes of God. And so when the angels here are crying out in worship to one another, they're not saying eternal, eternal, eternal. I mean, he is an eternal God, and, and we recognize that. They're not saying mighty, mighty, mighty. They declare him to be holy, holy, holy. He is three times holy. This is, is to emphasize. It is to underscore. No attribute 
of God is repeated are raised to the third power like this one is. He has said, it, it is said that he is holy, holier, holiest is the idea there. I like, I like the way that Stephen Lawson, he's the president of One Passion Ministry, he puts it like this. He said, sovereignty is the scepter in his hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Truth drips from his lips. Love fills his heart. Omnipotence is in his arms and his hands. Omniscience is in his eyes and ears. But the crown jewel of all of the attributes of God is his holiness. He is holy. Holiness can be divided, can, can be defined in two ways. Number one, God is set apart. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about he is set apart. That is the original meaning of the Hebrew word there that is used. God is completely set apart from everything and everyone. God exists outside of the created order. He is separate. He is set apart. He is holy. There is none. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. There is nothing that even can begin to compare to who God is. God is uniquely set apart and different from us. He is not like us. He is different in his very nature. Then the second way to define holiness is that God is without sin. Total and completely moral perfection, without fault. He does not conform to, to some holy standard because he is the standard. He doesn't conform to it. So, so much does he hate sin that he created an eternal lake of fire for the devil and his angels after they sinned. So much does he hate sin that he banished Adam and Eve from the garden after they sinned. So much does he hate sin that he sent a flood to cover the whole earth. So much does he hate sin that he sent down fire on Sodom. So much does he hate sin that he poured out his wrath on his only beloved son and he took our sins in his body on the cross so that we can have forgiveness and stand in the presence of a holy God. That's how much God hates sin. John Piper says, in the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in an utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. We get to the end of any words that can begin to describe the holiness of our God. You understand how separate, how totally other God is from us. And then God is glorious. The last part of verse 3 and then down into verse 4, the whole earth is full of his glory and the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. At this declaration of, of the fact that God is holy, 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 the very foundations of the temple began to shake. And the temple then was filled with smoke signifying the presence of the glory of God. His entire creation radiates his glory. 
and displays his awesome nature. He is the sovereign, transcendent, majestic, holy, glorious God, and he is far greater than any of us can even begin to comprehend. And having seen this God, one might think that Isaiah's response would be joyful and and full of excitement and maybe even a little giddy about it. But when Isaiah saw God, the effect was devastation. Absolutely devastating. That leads me to my second point, and that is you are more sinful than you are aware. You are more sinful than you are aware. Isaiah is aware of Uzziah's death. He is aware of the one who sits on the throne. He is aware of the seraphs as they they darted to and fro, declaring the holiness of God. And now, now after he is aware of all of that, now he suddenly becomes aware of himself. He recognizes that he is a sinful man standing in the presence of such holiness. This This finite, this impure, this defiled sinner is is standing side by side in the presence of infinite, eternal, and perfect holiness. And in that moment, the crushing weight of total despair overtakes Isaiah. Verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. He pronounced a curse upon himself. To be undone is to come apart of the seams, to unravel, to to disintegrate, to be damned. And so you see what Isaiah did here. He, He passes judgment on himself. He is literally saying here, send me to hell. Just get me out of the holy presence. He couldn't, he couldn't take the heat in that moment. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, he said. He has sinned with his lips. And now watch this. This points to a greater problem. Because you see, Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Isaiah didn't have a mouth problem. What did he have? had a heart problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Isaiah 6, 5, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then he goes on and says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah may well have been a, a bug trying to live on the surface of the sun. The intensity of the holiness threatened to totally undo him. And as he sees God, he recognizes his own sin. Now, there are a lot of people that claim to have seen visions of God. We, we've seen a, a, a number of those types of things. Uh, from a four-year-old boy uh, who inspired the book, Heaven is for Real, to a man by the name of Don Piper, not John Piper, the preacher, but Don Piper, who went to heaven when his heart stopped beating in the back of an ambulance. And, I, and, and I'm not here, to, not saying that they didn't happen. I'm just saying that these stories and others that we hear today are pretty far-fetched. And they are nothing like the biblical accounts of seeing God. 
And that, that's the part that bothers me. They, they are not the response that we see in Scripture when people come into contact with God. In Judges 13, God appeared to the parents of Samson in verse 22, and Manoah said unto his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. We didn't go play in a fountain or a pool with them and get dunked in the water and stuff that we hear other people saying that happened and just had a good old time in the afternoon. Daniel 10, 8 and 9 says, Therefore I was left alone and saw a great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my, my comeliness was turned in, in me into corruption, and I retained no strength, and yet, I heard, yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face towards the ground." It was like he was dead. Ezekiel 3, 23, Then I arose and went forth in, into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Cherbar, and I fell on my face. Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 6, when the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that his joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. You see, a true vision of God is devastating. Sinfulness cannot dwell in the presence of holiness. It exposes us for who we really are. And we stand guilty, we stand condemned before a holy God. And Isaiah is laid bare, if you will, before God. His sinfulness is fully manifested. He is uncovered and unprotected, and, and, and he, he thought this was it. <laughs> this is judgment day. And so he was expecting to leave the presence of God and enter into hell at that very moment. He is hopeless, helpless, unable to do anything to help him, himself, to help his own cause. He is guilty, he is ruined, and he knows it at this moment. This is, the, this is the state of every sinner, including you and including me. All of us have been marred by sin. We have chosen to go our own way. And like Isaiah, we stand condemned in front of a holy God. Do you feel your sin? Do you see your own inadequacies and your own shortcomings? God, God does. God sees our very heart. He knows our private sins as well as our public sins. He knows your fears, your worries your shortcomings. He is, he is intimately aware of all of your moral failures. If you are feeling, feeling the weight of your sin, then realize that you are in the same boat as Isaiah, desperate, helpless, condemned. But don't despair quite yet. The good news is coming. And that's number three. Grace is more amazing than you can ever imagine. It's more amazing than you can ever imagine. And in verse 6, he says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off of the altar. 
in great dread and, 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 and overwhelming fear. He is waiting for the pronouncement of judgment. But the hammer never falls. Judgment never comes. Instead, verse 7, and he laid that live coal, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. Thy iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. The very same lips that he had just declared unclean were touched with a red-hot coal, and he was declared righteous. God took his sins away. This is symbolic here. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed towards the greater sacrifice, so this, this too points towards the ultimate, the ultimate means of forgiveness. Not, not a coal from off the fires, but the nails on the cross. Sin was utterly paid for in full when Jesus gave his life for us. What did Isaiah do to earn that forgiveness? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He did not beg for it. He did not try to clean himself up. He did not try to convince God that, that he didn't deserve uh, judgment. He did not claim that he was a good person or even point to his religious deeds that he has done. On the contrary, grace was given to him in a unilateral act. It was all God. Nothing to do with Isaiah. Everything to do with God. What did he deserve? He deserved judgment. He deserved wrath. He deserved destruction. What did he get? He got grace. He got mercy. He got forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? That is so amazing. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen carefully. Forgiveness is not an end in itself, though. We often express our gratitude by saying, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me so that I won't have to face your wrath and I can spend eternity in heaven, and that's a great thing. But forgiveness is really a higher function than just that. Because you see, the, the point of forgiveness is to take the thing that separated us from God and get it out of the way so we come into fellowship with the holy God. That's what forgiveness is all about. Getting that barrier out of our lives so that we can come to know God in a way that we haven't ever known him before. The whole point of forgiveness is that right there. The thing that blocks us from coming into his presence was our sin. And in that act, Christ took our sins. He removed it so that we can have a relationship with God. And that's the point. And so Isaiah's sin was removed, and now he can stand before a holy God without any fear of judgment. He has been made right with God, and, and it is only at this point that he is ready to be used now 
because the barrier is gone. He's right with God, and now is the time for God to use him. And look at what happened in verse 8. Verse 8 said, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then said I, Here am I, send me. Isaiah is no longer on his face. His knees are no longer knocking together. He is no longer pronouncing judgment upon himself. Now he is ready to respond because the barrier has been removed and he's been brought together with Jesus. You, reveal, you revealed yourself to me. You forgave me. You cleansed me. You restored me. And now God hears my life. Use it however you want to use it. I offer my life to you. I will give you everything. And he doesn't ask, well, where are you sending me, Lord? He doesn't ask, what, what is my mission? He simply responded, here am I, send me. I trust you totally because we've got this relationship. And I know that wherever you send me, God, you're going to be right there with me. I'm not going to be alone. He is ready to be used of God, and God does use him. He, he used him to preach to Israel for more than 60 years. And this vision was the cornerstone of his ministry. Do you think he ever forgot this vision? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, we're, we're about out of time here, but I think we've got enough time to just bring a few closing thoughts. Number one, in closing here, I want to encourage you to pursue holiness. We, we are commanded in 1 Peter 1, 16, be holy for I am holy. Did you, did, did you come this morning battling with sin, anger, fear, worry, lust, pride, rebellion, lack of of desire or any of those things. The reason that you struggle with sin is because you have a low view of God. If you want to, if you want to diagnose your sin problem, here it is. You see God as low and yourself as high. And, and, and you see your desires way up here and, and what God wants way down here. It was only after Isaiah saw God, where was he? High and lifted up that he saw his own sin down here. Don't start with, wow, that, that, that message really fired me up. I need to stop sinning. I need to try harder. I need to do this or that. No, start with God. Fix your eyes on God. Raise your view of God, and when you are saturated with his sovereignty, and transcendency, and glory, and holiness, then you will find the strength and the desire to obey what he wants you to do. Number two, answer the call. God called Isaiah, and, and, and he's calling you, and he's calling me. He wants, he wants you right now. He didn't redeem you so that you could sit in the pews and, and critique sermons. He didn't give you spiritual gifts so you could stand on the sidelines thinking that I'm not quite ready to go yet. He didn't give you passions and desires to do nothing at all. It's time to get in the game. It's time to stir our hearts to action, even more so today than any day in our, in, in, in our lives to get out of our seats and to invest in eternity. There's work to be done.
He saved us to, to use us for his glory. And this is your one God-given impact, time to use, use uh, your talents and your gifts for God's glory. Don't wait. Lay up treasures in heaven. And the final thing, turn from sin and follow Christ. If you are not a Christian, then stop running, stop fighting, stop pretending. Come to God and ask him to forgive you. What a great, great morning to give your life to Jesus Christ. After his death, William Borden's personal effects were shipped back to his family. In the margin of his Bible, he had written three phrases, and all were dated. The first one was, no reserve, written shortly after he gave his vast inheritance to missions. The second was, no retreat, written shortly after his father told him he would never work in the family business because of his commitment to Christ. And the third one, no regret, written right before he died. Oh, that we would be men and women who burn for God, who answers the call. May our prayer be, hear my, send me. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.